Thanks for joining us. This is the EWN Podcast Network. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Rev with Rachel, where we recreate, enlighten, and vibrate in our radiance. I am Reverend Dr. Rachel Whetstone, but you can call me Rachel. This podcast is a place to learn about really feeling our emotions, mastering the mind, being aware of our energy, and tuning into our own body's intuition for the purpose of living in bliss, freedom, peace, and what I call our godly potential. And I would love to stay connected with you. If you want updates about Rev with Rachel and living a Rev life, please go to drrachelw.com, enter your name and email address, and I will send you Rachel's nine happiness and healing essentials, as well as my video class, Radical Radiant Growth. And I have an app that will support you on your inner healing journey to express your truest, most radiant self. Go to rachelapp.com for the download links and sign up for a free subscription to the Power Words and Daily Recreators. This episode is brought to you by me, your Mary Kay Independent Beauty Consultant for clinically proven skincare and cosmetics from an amazing company that is leading the beauty industry. Visit marykay.com backslash Dr. Rachel. I'm excited for today's episode. It's the alcohol experiment with Annie Grace. Annie is the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. Annie grew up in a one-room log cabin without running water or electricity outside of Aspen, Colorado. She discovered a passion for marketing, and after graduating with a Master's of Science in Marketing, she dove into corporate life. At the age of 26, Annie was the youngest vice president in a multinational company, and her drinking career began in earnest. At 35, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries and drinking almost two bottles of wine a night. Knowing she needed a change but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, Annie set out to find a painless way to regain control. She no longer drinks and has never been happier. She left her executive role to write her book and share this naked mind with the world. In her free time, Annie loves to ski, travel, 26 countries and counting, and enjoy her beautiful family. Annie lives with her husband and three children in the Colorado mountains. Welcome to the show, Annie. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on here. And now as I'm thinking about it and saying your name, do you go by Annie Grace or just Annie? Annie is fine. Okay, perfect. Well, so I think this, this, the the topic we're speaking to today um, is just so important because I think that uh, people perceive alcohol like it's all fine and okay as long as they're not an alcoholic. And I think you and I both have different perceptions of of that maybe societal um, belief. And so I'm excited to have you speak about the alcohol experiment. But share a little bit with the listeners about how did you get started um, in what you're doing now and writing your book and why, why is it important? Absolutely. So, you know, it was really based on my own journey. I was... Went, moved to New York City at the age of 26 and didn't really drink much at all and was told actually by my boss at the time that I needed to start, you know, coming to happy hour. Where, where are you at? Why aren't you there? And it was really interesting because I was like, well, I don't really drink. And he's like, no, no, that's not really what it's about. It's about networking and connections and we're all too busy during the day. This is where you can, you know, have your ideas heard, et cetera. Mm. I was like, okay, I'm serious about my job. I was in marketing. 
And so I started to show up at happy hour and I had kind of a method. I'd have a glass of wine and a glass of water and a glass of wine, glass of water, make sure that I didn't get too tipsy, didn't get, um, you know, drunk. I was very concerned about making a fool out of myself. So I was very cautious, very careful. But I think even with that much intentionality, sort of fast forward a decade and alcohol had taken, never was a time or a place that I can recall. It was a very, very slow slide. Um, but it had taken the place of other things that I would have done to relax or, you know, enjoy myself. So if I would come home and all of a sudden be stressed at the end of the day and my running shoes were there, the bottle of wine was there, I'd be like, oh, hmm, I'll just pour a glass of wine instead. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, 10 years later, I was drinking every single night and looking at my husband like, what is it? What happened? <laughs> like, we didn't even want to have alcohol in the house when we had kids. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden, here we are drinking all the time. And how, how did this happen? And it was never that I was, you know, really physically addicted to alcohol because I could always stop for periods of time and cut back. Mm-hmm. But it was really that when I did cut back or when I did stop, I would feel emotionally distraught about it. I'd be like, oh, but oh, it's just not as fun as if I'm the designated driver. Oh, well, you know, I'm just, I'd feel sorry for myself if I couldn't relax with that glass of wine. And so I realized that there was something really that had changed fundamentally in my thinking and in my emotional attachment to alcohol in the last decade. Um, That really happened for me at the same time where I was experiencing very severe back pain for about three years. And I had tried everything, traction, muscle relaxants, uh, everything, acupuncture, chiropractic to get over this and nothing was working. And finally, somebody recommended to me a book called Healing Back Pain with Dr. John Sarno. And the premise of the book is really that you can have subconscious repressed emotions that your body and your mind is protecting yourself from in the form of distracting you with pain. And I was like, okay, that sounds a bit woo woo. Mm. But, you know, in the beginning of the book, it was sort of like, I don't need to convince your conscious mind of this. I need to convince your subconscious mind of this. So you have to read this 300 page book and then your back pain will go away. I was like, okay, sounds crazy, but I'm desperate. Mm -hmm. So I read the book. And sure enough, my back pain went away. It was one of the most literally miraculous things I'd ever experienced in my life. And I was like, wow, you know, the power of the mind is so much greater than I had realized. And and I started thinking, okay, I think what's happening here, and I remember this very specific moment of just having this kind of epiphany and saying, I think what's happening here is that consciously I want to drink less. I mean, my tolerance is so high. I'm not even feeling tipsy or it's not fun. Um, you know, I'm getting hungover. But subconsciously, I now have a decade of conditioning that alcohol is the thing to go to, to relax, to have a good time, to loosen up, to network, all of these benefits. And there's a disconnect between what I consciously want to be doing and what this subconscious conditioning is telling me. And I said, what if I could, what if I could solve that? What if I could undo my subconscious beliefs around alcohol? and really bring this back in line. And so I set out to do that. I actually stopped trying to stop drinking. And I went on about a year-long quest of just really researching the subconscious mind, researching alcohol itself, researching neuroscience and neuroplasticity, and coming to a place where I just didn't want to do it anymore. I felt Mm -hmm. completely congruent again in the fact that yeah there's no part of alcohol that I saw benefit any anymore I took every single reason I had for drinking whether it was for relaxation or enjoyment and I kind of held it up to put it under a microscope so to speak and said is this really true is this empirically true does the science back this up is alcohol relaxing 
And through what I discovered, it was like, there's no way you could know all this stuff and then still have the delusion that alcohol was relaxing or that it was uh, adding to your enjoyment. And so it was so easy. It was not even a choice. It was just like, mm-hmm. no, there's, there's no chance of me putting that in my body anymore. And it was so freeing too, because I no longer came at not drinking from a sense of, oh, I'm missing out for me, deprivation. But it was just a sense of like, gosh, thank goodness I don't have to do that anymore. Oh, <laughs> thank yeah. goodness I don't know. Like I know what I know and I, you know, I feel really free of it. And um, that was amazing. And then I had all these journals and I said, okay, well, other people need to know all this stuff that I've found out. And so mm-hmm. I just put them up online uh, just for a free download, just you know, threw a PDF up there and 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. Wow crazy and I yeah. started letters from all over the world people sort of saying oh my gosh me too this changed my life and this is exactly what I needed to hear and I was like oh wow I have something here so I figured out how to self-publish it into a book that was back in 2015 and um yeah the rest is history it's really been this word of mouth kind of phenomenon since then I am I'd like to say sort of an accidental author and an accidental entrepreneur because I Mm-hmm. Did not set out to quit my job. <laughs> I did not set out to do any of this stuff. But wow. it's it's your legs. <laughs> yeah, and run on along with that's so awesome. I mean, and I find this fascinating too, because for myself, I haven't drank in six years. And once I was pregnant and nursing and all that, it was like the further away I got away from alcohol, the more I felt its negative effects. So like the more I notice like I didn't want to feel hungover the next day when I'm trying to take care of my kids and then as it got further away like I was like one glass of wine is all I can do and so there was I hadn't drank in months and I had one glass of wine and then a few days later I was like oh my I just feel numb emotionally numb and I had already kind of decided and been working on being more like aware of emotional healing and doing meditation and things like that. And so I was like, no, this isn't good. I don't want to be numb. I want to feel everything. (laughs) But I liked how there's something you wrote in your book. It says, when you begin to see the truth about alcohol, no willpower is required. And so what do you mean by that with no willpower? Because that's kind of how I feel it was for me. And so it wasn't like I had a problem with drinking or anything, but it just was like not how I want to show up for my family or, um, not not really benefiting my life in any way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what I mean specifically by that is just it's it's sort of like I wouldn't I wouldn't need, you know, alcohol, <laughs> I found out through my research is, you know, ethanol. It's actually what goes in your gas tank and fuels your car uh, in most cases. And so mm-hmm. once you start to sort of see, you know, not only just that it's actually poisonous to the body, you know, we we throw up because our body reacts to poison and says, I have to get this out of your system. Otherwise it will kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're not going to throw up from most other things that we consume from eating too much of it. You may feel sick or a little bit if you eat too much sugar, but you're going to have to eat a humongous amount to throw up. Yet alcohol is, is toxic. So it's not even that much. And we can start to, you know, get really sick. I mean, you could drink less than a pint glass full of liquor and literally kill yourself. And so when you start to see some of that stuff, it's like, wow, why, why is this so socially accepted? Why is this kind of the go-to thing? What is happening here? It reminds me a lot of um, the book, A Brave New World, in a way, where the soma is the thing that it's this pill that everybody is taking. And 
but it's actually really just keeping people small in their lives, you know? And I don't mean that from a sense of, of judgment at all, but really from a sense of I was being small in my life. You know, I wasn't reaching for things beyond me because what I was reaching for was a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sitting with my discomfort and then having to break through it and grow and become something new. What I was reaching for was something to numb my discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I think that once I could see that, once I could see that this wasn't the thing, you know, I had this false impression that alcohol was like the duct tape that was holding my whole life together. Like, oh, it's the reason that I can be this working mom and travel and have these two young kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's what's helping. But once I saw through that and just saw how false it was, and actually it wasn't helping at all, it was the reason that I was so anxious and so stressed and mm-hmm. so felt like a shell of myself. And it was the reason that I was really struggling. I mean, there's, there's no willpower involved in not taking it anymore. I remember, you know, one of the analogies that I give that I think is so appropriate is I was uh, diagnosed with an intolerance to eggs after Mm -hmm. my second son was born. And I remember months and months and months of this like crippling cramping and it would come and I tried to eliminate foods and I couldn't figure out what it was, couldn't figure out what it was. Finally did a blood test. Turns out it's eggs. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I stopped eating eggs, the cramping went away and it was so painful. And yeah, I like eggs. You know, they, they're great. They're great source of protein. Eggs are amazing. But I didn't approach the fact that I could no longer eat eggs with a sense of like dread and sadness and tears and poor me. It was really a sense of like, thank goodness I figured that out. Yeah. Because now I'm doubled over three times a week and in pain. And so, um, yeah, you know, bummer. I can't have a deviled egg when I want it. But I get to live completely free from that and I'm no longer being held back by what's holding me back. And so it doesn't take me any willpower not to eat eggs, for example. Mm-hmm. That That's really interesting because you also talk about the spontane, like spontaneous sobriety and you describe how, how your father had just decided one day that he was not going to drink anymore and never did. And um, that that's more like a whole whole brain choice versus just parts of our brain thinking, oh, I shouldn't, but I'm going, you know, then we have all these reasons and conditionings why we do. Uh, speak to that. Speak about the kind of spontaneous, the the choice. Yeah. And I think that it really does line up with, um, I mean, you can think of it as this idea of internal conflict or cognitive dissonance, right? So if you have two competing thoughts inside your head, you know, that you both where I was, I both wanted to be drinking because I felt like it provided a benefit and I had a desire for it. And I both wanted to be not drinking because I felt like it was providing some pretty severe consequences in the term, you know, in terms of hangovers and just not feeling my best and, you know, not being able to, once I had, you know, two glasses of wine, which was my quote limit, my brain wasn't saying, oh yeah, say no to that third one I'd actually you know would be saying yes to that third one so I was constantly overdoing it Mm. and I had these two competing desires in my head and it's a really really painful place to live um, to have to want to both to do more and less of something at the same time or to want to do you know more of something and then find yourself making promises to yourself and then breaking them and saying okay only two glasses tonight and then you had four or not going to drink except on Fridays and then you either feel miserable or you drink more days than Friday and you're beating yourself up. I mean, it's this constant source of inner conflict. And we overlook inner conflict in our culture, I think, as a whole, because we we know that conflict is painful to humans. We know it doesn't feel good to 
to fight with, even to witness conflict across the street doesn't feel good, but like to fight Mm -hmm. with our spouse or our kids, it, it feels awful. But what we don't realize is that like we are fighting inside ourselves all the time. Every time we talk negatively to ourselves, every time we beat ourselves up for one of our decisions, every time we come down on ourselves. And it's cause it's the most painful type of conflict. But again, because it's so natural and we become so it's just what we do is talk negatively out outwardly and inwardly to ourselves that we we just say, oh, that's just how it is. But when you shine a light, that is really painful. And so I think what spontaneous sobriety in a nutshell is, is coming to a place where you're, you're no longer in that inner conflict. And I think it was really interesting for me because in my journey, I realized that I was making these rules and breaking them. I realized that I was both wanting to do more and less of something at the same time. And then when I said, okay, right, I'm just going to figure out why this has changed. I'm going to figure out why my thinking has changed, why it used to be up to age 26. I barely drink at all, but then all of a sudden I moved to New York City. I started drinking. What changed? But I'm not going to put rules or limits on myself while I figure this out. And that was really the first step towards totally eliminating that inner conflict. So then I was able to understand all this new information without any sense of guilt, any sense of shame, just with the sense of, oh, okay, that's interesting. I got really curious. And when that happened, everything shifted. And I think that's just, you know, for anybody listening who might be in a position where they're wondering about their own drinking, if you can replace beating yourself up with curiosity, you just change the entire conversation. Like, okay, let's stop beating myself up. Let's just say, why is it? Why is it that I say that I'm only going to have two glasses of wine and I have four? Huh, let me find the answer to that. You know, guess what? Things happen inside your brain neurochemically that make it almost impossible to say no to that third glass of wine. That's not your fault. Mm-hmm. And you say, oh, okay. And then when that happens, when you see all of those pieces, when you see all that truth, you know, it is, it feels so spontaneous because it almost feels like a magic trick. You've eliminated the inner conflict and you just feel completely congruent. And that's um, really that, that sense of peace. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, the, leading into a couple of things. I love this quote by Stephen Covey you wrote in your book, be patient with yourself. Self-growth, self-growth is tender. It's holy ground. There's no greater investment. And I, I just think you're really speaking to that around like not beating ourselves up over everything and making a choice to kind of shift out of that. And then um, you also talk about mental peace is having no distress. It's a feeling you can never achieve with a drug. And yeah. coming to peace within ourselves, it's, it's kind of like we think we need that for peace, to relax and to calm down. But really, it's, it's something that's got to be grown within us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so true because it's like putting a, I always describe it like putting a Band-Aid over a festering wound, you know, like mm-hmm. alcohol does numb you. It is an anesthetic. It was used as an anesthetic in surgeries mm-hmm. back before we found safer things like morphine and opioids, <laughs> Yeah, which is kind of hilarious in hindsight, but it really was true. It stopped being used because of how toxic it was, mm-hmm. but it is an anesthetic. It will numb your physical body and it will numb your thoughts. It makes you think slower. But that, and so if you're, if you're not in a place of peace or if you're in a place where you're afraid of your own thoughts and you're not willing to sit with your discomfort or you're under the delusion that life should be always comfortable 100% of the time, by the way, which most people are under that delusion because we've been fed that through the mm-hmm. media and other sources for as long as we can remember, 
and you don't sit with it, you're never solving it. It's literally like you're taking a wound that's festering and infected, and instead of actually cleaning it out and allowing it to heal, you're slapping a Band-Aid over it, and you are you know, sealing it off from the light and making it so that you can't see it, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. And that is what it, what's happening in your life, especially when you start to drink for self-medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and one of the reasons I drank, I loved how it made me lose my inhibitions and now not drinking. I liked how you were speaking just now about thinking life should be comfortable. A really a lot of personal growth, I think is just getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love for you to share more kind of like the truth about alcohol in your book. You talked about a study in mice that were given doses of alcohol for one month. Can you expand on that? Yeah, it was just fascinating. And it's one of many, many sources that confirm this point that alcohol actually does not relax us. So in this specific study from 2012, um, there was two groups of mice, a control group and the experimental group. And the experimental group was given, you know, mouse doses of alcohol for 30 days. And then both groups were run through a stressful course and and put under stress. So they were like literally put under duress and they were measured to see how well they handled it. Mm-hmm. And the mice that had been drinking were much less able to tolerate and deal with the stress than the mice that had not been drinking. And um, if, if we're really honest with ourselves, we can look back and say that. And we can say, okay, you know, is, is this daily drinking actually helping me handle stress overall because where we get tripped up is we say, but it feels good in the moment, but it numbs me in the moment, but it takes the edge off in the moment. But then we also know that overall um, it isn't, it isn't helping. And we can just, Mm -hmm. our our gut tells us that, but then the science really confirms that, that actually, you know, physiologically, you are much less able to deal with the stress when your body is constantly fighting off a toxin because it's always having to fight off alcohol. So for, for example, when you drink, your liver says, oh my gosh, job one is to purge this toxin from the body. And your body actually stops doing other things. It stops digesting food. It stops regulating your blood sugar levels. So your blood sugar levels can really fall, which make you feel quite bad. Um, especially as you're coming down from that drink, because your body says, I have to get rid of this alcohol. I have to get it out of my system as soon as possible. So it stops doing all of these other things. And so when your body is always focused on just trying to fight off this intruder, so to speak, it doesn't have a lot of time to do other things like focus on your well-being or your healing or even, you know, digesting the food that you've put in it to nourish it. Mm-hmm. And so it really does, you know, physiologically make your body much more stressed out. And then another aspect of that is that alcohol, because it is ironically and interestingly, it's both a stimulant and a depressant. So it stimulates as your blood alcohol content rises. So as for the first 20 to 30 minutes after a drink, your BAC or your blood alcohol content will be going up. And during that first 20 to 30 minutes, you feel that kind of tipsy euphoric feeling and it's going up and it feels like an upper and it's that's when it's a stimulant. But mm-hmm. after that first 20 to 30 minutes, you sort of peak and your blood alcohol levels start to fall. And this is as your body kicks in and says, whoa, 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 get this out of my system. Gotta, you know, gotta fight this off. And as a depressant, that's when you start those blood alcohol levels fall, you start to feel really negative. You start to feel 
feel really restless and uncomfortable and anxious and tired. And your body actually releases adrenaline and cortisol in order to counteract some of those feelings. So cortisol is like known as the stress hormone. It's released in your body as a reaction to alcohol as it goes on to fight it off. And the real kicker here is that that stimulant effect, the effect that we all gets us hooked, the reason we drink in the first place, that lasts for 20 to 30 minutes for one drink. Whereas that negative depressant effect lasts for two to three hours. Now this isn't real apparent because after 20 to 30 minutes, when we start to fall, um, we get that urge for that second drink. We're like, whoa, 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 this doesn't feel good. And so we say, oh, we just need another drink. And you can keep your blood alcohol rising, you know, for four to five drinks. So you can keep it rising pretty much until you fall asleep at night. But then overnight, it's going to be falling and you're going to be feeling all those things, including, you know, disrupted sleep, restlessness. And in the morning, your blood alcohol will still be falling and you will feel, you know, we know we feel awful in the morning. We feel emotionally awful. We feel physically awful. We feel anxious. We feel uncomfortable. We don't connect it back to last night's drinking from an emotional perspective. Certainly we do from a physical perspective. But from an emotional perspective, we say, oh, well, you know, it just it's just the morning. It's just Monday. It's just hard. You know, we give all sorts of excuses instead of realizing, like, actually, you can wake up feeling great every morning. It is really, truly possible. <laughs> all you have to do is just cut out the drinking the night before. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. Um so now expand on about alcohol because it, it so it's a drug and compared to other drugs, which um, you talked about something called the harm rating and alcohol has the highest harm rating. Can you describe what that is and how it compares to other drugs? Yeah, so there's been two, um, at least two, two that I know of independent studies done where basically you measure harm across every single drug. And um, there was one called the margin of exposure approach, which really means that it is not only how toxic the drug is, but then also how much of the drug is consumed and how many people are exposed to it. And one was done just on individuals. So the impact to the individual actually consuming the drug. And the other one was done on not only individuals, but then the harm beyond the individual to society. And in both of these different um, studies, long-term studies, very reliable. Alcohol was by far and away the most dangerous and harmful drug in our society. And that wasn't just because of, you know, the drunk driving, the domestic violence, the child abuse, all of those sorts of things. It was also just the harm to the specific individual. And a lot of that has to do with how much we drink, but also just with how toxic it is. And it does get completely a free pass because it is legal. It is not only legal, but if you think of um, most small businesses that are restaurants, their big profit source is alcohol. So there's so much financial impact mm -hmm. tied up in the alcohol industry. Um, alcohol is taxed at a higher rate than other food. So it is, you know, the government is making a lot of money out of alcohol. Alcohol is uh, advertised to the tune of many billions of dollars. And interestingly, alcohol is usually has the top spot in terms of advertising spend every single year. Sometimes that's beat out by automobile advertising, which also spends a lot of money, but often it is alcohol. And so there's wow. so much money tied into this conversation that um, it really is swept under the rug, but it is definitively, you know, the most harmful substance in society. And that's you know, more harmful than heroin, more harmful than cocaine, more harmful than meth. It is really up there. But we even say drugs and alcohol as if it's separate when, you know, it's, it's oh, just right. a drug. It's the most harmful drug there is. 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting. Something you wrote in your book was that alcohol kills like over 17 times more people than cocaine, which I think people would be really surprised to know that because <laughs> it's become so socially acceptable. You know, it's almost, I mean, that's how I justified it when I was younger. It was just like, well, everyone's doing it. This is just what we do in our early twenties. This is, you know, it, even though I put like different boundaries around it, I kind of had all these rules that I had. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, and then, so what about alcohol and disease? I think, and you also talked about in your book how, there's been studies reported that show benefits, but there's like 10 times more that show how harmful it is. So what about alcohol and disease? Yeah, it's really interesting because they do, they do get shared so much more frequently. When, when something is written that alcohol is good for heart health or it helps you live longer or um, you know that it's <laughs> a glass of red wine is the equivalent of a half an hour in the gym, whatever these headlines mm-hmm. that we see are, they get shared. And that's just down to really the science of social sharing. People share things that are, you know, congruent with what they're already doing. So if they justify someone's behavior, they're going to share it. They're going to make them feel better about their own behavior. Um, If it's going to make you, you know, give you kind of cool points, you're with it, you're hip, you're in, uh, you're going to share it. And so, but the things that, that aren't getting shared are there's so many, a huge multiple more studies on the harms of alcohol. It causes over 60 diseases. Um, alcohol is definitively causes cancer. And I think that's one thing that people don't really realize or want to admit, but even just two glasses of wine per week um, or two drinks per week, wine or anything else can increase a woman's chance of breast cancer by 15%. And that's according to cancer.gov. So it's a very serious concern for cancer. It was declared a known carcinogen back in 1988, yet again, it just gets this completely free pass in our society, which is is so interesting. Um, but it is, and all of those studies, you know, there's always two, two sides to every coin, but the majority of those studies, they really have taken headlines and pieces of the study out of context. In fact, often the scientists (laughs) are quoted as being very frustrated with how Mm -hmm. those studies have been taken out of context. I can give you, you know, a quick example is one about alcohol making people live longer. So the study said, it was the Houlihan study and it said moderate drinking has people live longer. And so what it did is it tracked people over 20 years and it was three groups of people, people who are excessive drinkers, people who are moderate drinkers, and then people who were non-drinkers who are abstinent. And it tracked people from age 50 to age 70. And then it said how many of each of the three groups died during that time period. Now there was no cause of death associated, first of all. So that's just interesting from the get-go. It wasn't that, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't know the cause of death. But in this study, it very black and white written out says that the non-drinkers were often non-drinkers because of prior alcohol use or because they were sickly or on medication that prevented them from moderate drinking. Mm. And so, yeah, the non-drinkers died faster than the moderate drinkers. But I can tell you for me, my grandmother, when she was alive, she wasn't able to drink any alcohol because she had a heart condition. She was on heart medication. Mm -hmm. And so she would have been in that non-drinker, but that was because the only reason she was a moderate drinker her whole life, but the only reason she couldn't drink over the age of 50 was because of this heart condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so often also it would be that the non-drinkers, you know, 
had other health problems that actually prevented them from drinking and that wasn't taken into account. So again, the scientists are very frustrated because they're like, this isn't accurate. This isn't really what we're trying to say. But the headline says moderate drinkers live longer than and that's what gets socially shared thousands and thousands of times, you know, probably millions of times across the internet to the point where it becomes common knowledge that moderate drinking helps you live longer, completely taking, you know, it out of context. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, that's so true. And I'm glad you're speaking around that because it is so easy to kind of take what, what, um, connects with us from research or from an article and say, Oh, this, you know, but it's, we, you know, where is that coming from? And is it truly true? And, um, I've got a kick out of something you were writing about with the antioxidants and wine. And you were like, what if people just had to drink some juice every night for the antioxidants? Because <laughs> they're, you know, for people who are justifying wine drinking because it's healthy and the antioxidants. But that was neat. <laughs> oh, me too. I totally did that at the beginning. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's good for my heart. One glass of, a night or whatever, which, it, you know, evolved into much more than one glass. But that was very much true for me. And there was <laughs> another thing that they have um, said is that alcohol is good for heart health because it has this chemical called resveratrol in it. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> this is actually kind of a funny one, but again, it doesn't get shared. So nobody knows this, but a few years ago, they did a study to just really, they, they actually wanted to definitively prove that resveratrol was good for the heart and, and make it like a big red wine campaign. And they were all excited about it. And so they did this study of, I think it was a region in Italy where people had very high levels of resveratrol because of their diet, because of how much wine they drank. And they tracked um, high levels versus low levels to see if there was a a correlation between people having healthier hearts and living longer with these higher levels of resveratrol. Mm -hmm. Turns out there's no correlation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the study they had done before was in mice. And so they (laughs) issued this retraction saying, no, okay, so it turns out that it wasn't actually true across species and um, that really was to do with mice and not to do with humans and resveratrol is not proven to be heart healthy at all which is interesting but that's still out there like people Mm, still think okay red wine chemicals heart healthy antioxidants that's what's happening there's not you know yeah there was a little retraction you know published but nobody's seen it so and it's not gonna you know catch fire on the internet like something like red wine is good for your heart would so yeah I would love for you to speak to now of the alcohol experiment what is that and how, how might you be able to support some of the listeners if they're curious about that? Yeah, absolutely. So after I read my first book, I actually got this review from uh, a guy and he said that he had picked up the book for his brother and now he doesn't even like beer, thinks a lot, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought it was so funny because I was like, wow, it really is that you have to be Googling and searching for you know, um, I want to change my drinking somehow to find my first book. And I was like, but we really need to lower the barrier to entry to the conversation because so often we're like, oh, is it bad enough? Should I, should I look at my drinking? Do I have a problem? And, you know, really we should be asking like, is it good enough? Like, is it good enough to keep drinking like this? You know, how much better could things be? And so that was really where the alcohol experiment was born. It's this kind of 30 days, no strings attached challenge. You just take a break for 30 days. But unlike most challenges where over that 30 days, alcohol becomes like the forbidden fruit and you want it even more than you did before and you're wishing for it and pining after it um, in the alcohol experiment. And every day I, I send out an email and a video that really gives you a mindset shift and, and gives you some more information like you heard today. And so after the 30 days, you 
are really at a place where you're not using willpower not to drink. It's not the forbidden fruit. You're just in a really good place where you can then make a very mindful decision about where you want um, kind of your drinking to go and where you want your relationship with alcohol to go after the 30 days. So it's really, really exciting. And it's, it's totally free um, at alcoholexperiment.com. And so it's just a, yeah, no strings attached challenge to kind of, you know, dip a toe, see, see what you think find out for yourself. That's why it's an experiment. Like it's your life, figure out what you want to do completely for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Thanks for having that and and sharing it with our listeners today. I hope some people will go check that out. Definitely. Your, uh, Your book too. I hope some of the listeners will go read your book. It's the facts and how you present it is so beautiful in, in raising our awareness about you know, where have these societal beliefs come from and why, why are they still driving us and what, what else should we know, <laughs> you know? Is there anything else you want to speak to around this topic to the listeners today? Oh, no, I just, I guess I would just say that, you know, if you are wondering about your drinking, just really understand that you're not alone. It's just for some strange reason, it's become this taboo subject in our society. But one thing I realized when I started talking about this is there isn't a person sort of in my social group who hasn't come up to me and said, huh, yeah, me too. You know, I've wondered that too. And Mm -hmm. so we think like, oh, I'm alone in this. Everybody else is holding it together and it's just me. But um, that's just not true. And, And once you you know, start to see that we're, we're all wondering this. I mean, alcohol is toxic to human beings and it doesn't make us feel good. So, you know, drinking it, we all start to question it. And that questioning is, is good. It's a really good thing. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have to stop drinking forever. It doesn't mean that you're an alcoholic. It doesn't mean that you have a problem. You know, all it means is that you just have a good head on your shoulders and you're wondering about the thing you ingest, <laughs> which yeah. is a very, very good thing to be doing. And so um, just taking the shame away from it and just really realizing that you're not on not on your own with this. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, what's coming to me now is you talked about a statistic in your book around drinking and driving and like um, auto-related deaths. Was it, what was the percentage that are alcohol-related? Um, I don't know at the top of my head, but I know it's, I think it's close to half. Yeah, I wanted to say that like 50%. And uh, yeah, I just kind of was shocked by that. But I find myself as as I've just been away from alcohol and seen how pervasive it is everywhere. If we go out to eat as a family and people, parents drinking, and then, so we'll be driving home. I'm like, Alan, just, if he's driving, I'll be like, just back off out the other cars. Like the assumption is this is Saturday evening. There are going to be people, you know, or even on weekdays, but for some reason it'd be like a Saturday night we're driving home. And I'm like, just, you know, know that some people could be drinking and driving, just back off from them. Let's, protect ourselves and be safe but yeah Yeah, I think it is that one in one in 10 cars um on the road in the evening are drunk drivers Mm -hmm. and and drunk maybe more are have been drinking but not at a at a drunk level too absolutely yeah awesome thank you so much what's the website that you'd like to share with the listeners to connect with you or to learn more um, this nakedmind.com is my main website. And then if you want to try the free experiment, it's at alcoholexperiment.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you're teaching out in the thank world. Thank you. So important. 
Hey, Rev with Rachel listeners, if you haven't already done so, please hit the subscribe button so you get all of the latest episodes. And if you're ready to dive deeper into your freedom and radiant expression, you can get my book, Radiantly Free, Recreating Life and Health from the Radiance of You from Amazon. With that, remember to rev, recreate, enlighten, and vibrate. Thank you for listening. Until we meet again, be love. EWN Podcast Network.